Welcome to the Time Management Podcast with me, your host, Abigail Barnes. I'm a productivity coach, global speaker, time management author, and award-winning entrepreneur on a mission to share the 888 formula with the world and to remind you that it's your time. Leave it to me to bring you new time management tips, tricks, tools, and strategies to introduce you to guests, research, and case studies from around the world, and to give you a simple five-step process you can follow to up-level your productivity, achieve your goals, and create a life that exceeds your wildest dreams. I'm so excited that you're here, so let's get started. Welcome to the show. My guest today is the amazing John R. Miles, a leading authority on international behavior change, personal growth, and mattering. He's also the host of the Passion Struck podcast, which I was a guest on when it was at episode number 38. John has now delivered 391 episodes of this podcast now. It has 30,000 plus five-star reviews online, 25 million downloads, and is being listened to in over 169 countries. John Miles, welcome to the show. Abigail, it's so nice to see you again, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so, so, so excited for this conversation. So let's just dive straight in with who is John R. Miles in a nutshell? I'll give you the 50,000 foot overview. I am a former naval officer, and I got to serve some time while I was on active duty with the British forces, which I loved. I was also uh, a senior executive for most of my career. Uh, one of the positions I served in was I was the head of risk management and information security for Bovis, which many people in the UK probably recognize that name. I worked for the parent company, Lendlease. And then I spent a number of years as a partner in private equity before now launching on this latest version or reinvention of myself where I have a podcast, as Abigail mentioned, a media company that I started and an upcoming book. Oh my goodness. So I am speaking to John R. Miles 3.0. So let's just wind the clock back a bit metaphorically and orally when I ask you the first question. Tell me, tell us what your relationship was like with time over the years. Have you always been good with time or has it been something that has changed throughout your multiple versions of who you have now become? Abigail, it's a great question. And I don't think any of us think about time as much as we should and how we're intentionally living our life are two of the most important things that we need to be concerned about. Because if you want to look at where you're investing your life, you just look at your wallet and you look at your calendar. So time is absolutely crucial. And I think for me, my relationship with time changed fundamentally when I was a sophomore in high school and I was on the cross country and track teams. And at that point, I was uh, on, on a team that had some great runners on it, but I wasn't performing at, at my best. And I realized 
that I was approaching my workouts in the wrong way. For me, every single one of them just felt like they were grueling and it was just immense effort to want to go on these long distance runs. But I started to think about time differently and that it was malleable and that some days the runs were going to be very difficult because perhaps I was having an off day or I was sore from the previous day's workout or just having a bad day. But other times, I even at that young an age was starting to figure out how could I put myself in a flow state where I could be doing a seven mile run and it could feel like it was five minutes. And as I learned how to get into that state, I realized that maximizing this zone of what I call optimal anxiety was a game changer for me. And so trying to perfect how to make time malleable became something that I've worked on ever since for decades. Oh my goodness me. It's so funny how we can have conversations now and talk about things like flow state. And we're like, yeah, you know, I get into flow state and then I'm more productive. But the fact that you intuitively knew how to do that and pulled that out of yourself is just incredible. So this I'm guessing is like version 1.0. And then you go into the military. Uh, your relationship with time there must have been a very interesting conversation. Yeah, for me, time management became crucially important when I was a midshipman at the Naval Academy because time was a resource that we did not have much of. And I mean, I, to put it in perspective, to graduate from uh, most colleges, you need to have about 120 credits in four years. To graduate from the Naval Academy, you're more like 180 to 200. So you have this academic load where you're carrying anywhere between 18 to 25 credits per semester. Most of the time I was in a low to mid-20s. Plus, you've got military aspects of the curriculum that you're constantly having to study. And on top of that, I was a, a multi-sport Division One athlete, traveling all the time, etc. And so learning how to budget your time was life or death in getting through the program, getting the grades that I wanted to achieve because your class ranking determines what basically uh, military specialty you were going to get. So it was very crucial to be at the top. So I learned very quickly into that um, how important it was that I needed to intentionally focus my time on the most important things in the most critical aspects of every single day. So it was constantly, as I was waking up, setting intentions and looking at my schedule and what I needed to get done and allocating time accordingly to it. And so that's a practice that I think myself and many of my classmates took into the military, uh, which set us up for a much easier voyage in the military and then into my professional career. Oh my goodness, I love this. Um, and so then the next chapter, version 2.0, you're going into the corporate world and you're taking what you know from the military, you're taking what you've learned um, throughout your sort of previous versions. What was your relationship like with time then? Were you the person in the office that people used to ask, how can I, can you help me? 
um yeah i'd love to know more about that yeah abigail so for me one of the things i talk a lot about uh, in my upcoming book is the need for reinvention and of course you're going to have to reinvent yourself coming out of the military however for me it took a turn that i never expected i got out of the military because i'd been recruited by various three little three letter organizations to come and join them and i ended up picking the fbi i was literally out of the military for about five days it was a friday morning i'm supposed to start my quantico class the following monday and we're driving in the car on our way from key west florida where my last duty station was up to virginia when i get a call from my detailer who says unfortunately Congress can't get their act together and they haven't passed the budget. And so your class doesn't have funding and you've been recycled. And so panic starts setting in and I ask, well, how long could that take? And he told me best case scenario, you're looking at 18 months, typical scenario, you're looking at 24 months to 36 months. And so for me, all of a sudden time became this perishable thing where what am I going to do? I've got a wife to support. I don't have a plan B. And so at that point in time, my efforts just went solely to finding a, a job, finding income. And that led me into consulting. So completely different track than I thought I was going to take. But the ironic thing is my first job was with a company called Booz Allen. And the first project I worked on was developing the National Infrastructure structure protection center for the fbi ironically but wow i guess um to answer your question further as i was in that consulting job i i guess what just differentiated me from maybe some of the other people worked i worked with was i used my time differently um, a lot of them spent much of their day gossiping with other people around the office doing I thought lackadaisical work where for me, there were periods where I would set aside time to have those types of conversations and relationships. But I was really focused on, I had this desire, even now that I've switched my career, that I wanted to advance. So I started to look at what is it going to take to advance? And so I started allocating my time into learning everything I could about the clients that we were working for, looking at ways that I could constantly devote time to upskilling my capabilities in information security, which was the domain that I was focused on, trying to spend time observing the partners in the practice and other senior uh, associates, et cetera, so I could understand their demeanor, how they were carrying themselves, what was making them successful, and then allocating the right amount of time to spend uh, working with my clients. Because the, the difference between going to college and being out in the real world is if you get a C plus or a B in college in a class, you can recover from it. If you're not doing A plus work all the time in your profession, it can be an unrecoverable mistake. So for me, it was how do I properly focus my time and my efforts on bringing my A game every single day to the job and constantly trying to improve my skill set. Wow. What do you think 
actually um, was the catalyst for this kind of approach? Was it something that happened in childhood that helped you to have this perspective? Because I am very privileged that I get to speak to people like you who are who are telling me that this is how you live. But these kind of conversations are few and far between, which is why I love to share them on the podcast. But so if you look back, were there key milestones that happened in your childhood and growing up that informed how you then went on to be? Well, there were a number. I think one of the most pivotal things that happened to me in childhood, and I know you had a defining life moment uh, later on than I did, but when I was five or six years old, uh, we were living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time, and I was playing with some friend, neighborhood friends along the side of my house, and we were playing uh, tag, and one of the kids ended up shoving me from behind, and I went airborne and crashed through our bottom basement window of our house, which ended up causing me to have a traumatic brain injury whole bunch of stitches, et cetera. And coming out of that, my life uh, completely changed. Now, I don't remember a lot of this, but I do remember the ramifications. I developed a, a speech impediment. I started having migraine headaches. I was having cognitive issues. I was having issues where I would forget words and just lose space. And so it caused me uh, to be very insular in how was how I was approaching the world. I was already an introvert, but because of these things that I was so self-conscious of, even at a young age, um, I didn't like to open my mouth because kids would make fun of me because of the way I talked, the way I couldn't get words out, et cetera. And so I think for me, even then subconsciously, I didn't realize it, but I knew I needed to devote time into improving myself. And so I started to see speech therapist. I started to see uh, some folks that were helping me with my auditory processing issues that I had developed. Um, I was at, constantly trying to find ways that I could work through the debilitating migraines that I would get you know, 14 or 15 days a month. And I guess I just de developed this mindset that only I can figure out a way to get through it. And so some of those things still persist even to this day, because unfortunately I've had even more traumatic brain injuries along the way, but uh, I think it was learning how to properly balance things I had to do with realizing that I needed to devote some of my time to getting myself better. And a couple other things that I think play pivotal roles is I've always had a strong work ethic. And my family was the type that they would give us the basics of what we need. I, I grew up in a Catholic uh, household. I went to parochial schools. They would buy us the uniforms and some basic necessities, but anything beyond that, we had to come up with ourselves. So literally when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I started a paper route uh, that I would do every day after school. And so understanding how you needed to budget that time to get that done while still doing your schoolwork was important. And then as soon as I possibly could, I took a job working in a supermarket uh, and that taught me a whole bunch of skill sets around time management as well, because I still had the paper out. Now I was working in the supermarket and I still had varsity sports and schoolwork that I had to keep up with. So 
I think those were some of the pinnacle moments. Wow. It really sounds to me like you have maxed out your usage of time so much over the years in the different versions that you've been. And thank you so much for sharing your story, John. I resonate so, so deeply with the rebuild after a neurological situation, challenge, um, incident, whatever the word is that, that we use to, to describe it. Because, and, and this is probably why we, we um, have so much in common that we are fascinated by neuroscience and understanding how other people do things. And it definitely, the fact that you have gone through that challenge and then now, as I was saying at the start, on episode 391 of your podcast at this time of recording, the number of guests, the number of solo episodes that you've done is just so, so incredible. And I can't think of the word, a credit to the work that you've actually done in order to be able to turn something really life-changing into life-changing fathers. Well, thank you for that, Abigail. And I think what I've applied to this podcast, just as I've applied to other elements of my life, is the absolute necessity in taking consistent, deliberate action. And I think a lot of people get what this means wrong. Oftentimes, we think that in order to make sweeping changes or to have overwhelming success, we need to do big, grandiose things. And I am a true believer that it's not that that gets us from point A to point B. It's the tiny habits, the micro choices that we make throughout our days that ultimately determine whether we hit a peak of a tsunami of greatness or fall into the valley of despair. Because one of the things I like to talk about is the importance of intention and making intentional choices or decisions. And people often ask me, well, what do you mean by, by that and being intentional? Well, there is a way that you can simplify this. Most of us go throughout our days and we make easy choices so or easy decisions. And these are things that we have this core set of beliefs, typically. We have core values. We have these aspirations we want. But instead of taking the harder path and doing the harder thing, we end up taking the thing that's easier, which is typically going against something we believe in or going against a core value we have. And maybe making one or two of those easy choices, kind of like getting that C or B in college, isn't going to impact your life. But what ends up happening is we fall into the habit of making these easy choices again and again and again. Whereas the opposite of that is intentionally making the harder choices, the ones where it's really a gut-wrenching decision to follow your core values instead of making the easier decision that might get you through a situation with maybe some of your friends where you see them something you see them doing something that you don't agree with but you decide just to go with the crowd instead of taking a stand or it could be a work related situation where your core value tells you to do X on a project, but the rest of the team wants to do Y and you don't stand up for it. And the more we make those easy decisions, the farther it takes us away from achieving the, the very aspirations and goals that we have in life. 
And I call this concept that we become our own visionary arsonist. We have these aspirations, we have these goals, and we arson the very visions that we aspire to achieve in our lives. Wow. You have just very brilliantly segued us into talking about your new book, Passion Struck. So this is one of your 12 powerful principles that you share with the reader. Um, I'd really like to talk to you about the thriving amid mosquitoes principle. Can you tell us a bit more about this one and how we can use this principle in our day-to-day lives? Yeah, Abigail, this is a really fun one. I enjoyed writing this chapter and it originally started out completely different. And as I go through my writing cycles, um, I find that sometimes the best way to to get creative and, and thinking about them is to just spend time in nature. And I happen to be walking my dog and um, I started out thinking about this concept as I was walking. And then about 20 minutes into it, I decided I was going to listen to uh, a podcast. And the host was talking about the most deadly creatures on earth. And he asked the audience, what do you think is the most deadly creature creates the most harm every single year? And I think like most people, my mind went to Australia and all the deadly creatures they have, like the poisonous jellyfish or the great white sharks or whatever it might be. And he came back on and said, you're probably thinking about all these things and you're absolutely wrong. The most dangerous plant animal on the planet by leaps and bounds is the mosquito. This invisible creature that takes the lives of a million to 2 million people per year. And it got me thinking, just like mosquitoes are often invisible in our lives And we have a lot more of them here in Florida than I think you do there in London. But you don't even realize they're around. I mean, you might hear their buzzing in your ear, but oftentimes you you don't realize the ramifications until they bite you. And then it's this lasting side effect, depending on the nature of the bite. And it got me thinking, the same is true with so many human mosquitoes that we have that infiltrate our lives. And I wrote this chapter because tried to create a set of principles or steps that someone could use, whether they were trying to build their life from scratch, from the bottom up, or perhaps they're a high achiever and they've plateaued and they're looking for how do you get yourself to the next level. And this was really the third step or third principle that I covered. And it's important because We can have this vision of life that we're striving for, but if we're allowing people and influences to infiltrate our life that are going against where we desire to be, it's going to permanently keep you stuck where you're at. And so what I encourage people to do is to try to identify those mosquitoes that are impacting their trajectory. And these could be activities that you're doing, like perhaps going to the pub every single night uh, instead of devoting time to self-betterment. It could be uh, people that you meet, activities, or other things that you're doing. But let's just focus on people inside your inner circle. And the way I like to think about this is think about you're doing archery and you're looking at a target and 
who is in that inner circle and the inner circle that's beyond it. And in this chapter, I identify three different types of human mosquitoes. The first I call the bloodsucker. And these are those people in your life or those activities in your life that are boundary destroyers. The second one I call the invisible suffocator. And these are the pessimists in your life, the ones who you get this new incredible job opportunity. And all they can do is tell you all the impact that it's going to have on your family, how much more you're going to have to work, all the negatives about what it entails. And then the third one uh, I call the, the PETA or the pain in the ass. And this could be the, the client that you have where maybe you're a realtor and you're working with 10 different clients, but they think the world stops with them and that all your attention should be devoted on them. Or it's that person that never lets you say a word when you're around them and constantly has to talk about what they're doing, why they're so great, et cetera, but doesn't really give a damn about you, but they're sucking up your time. So all of these are invisible influences that are in our lives. And if we're not paying attention to them, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. So this chapter is all about identifying these three different types of human mosquitoes are obviously more, but then once you know that they're there in your life, what do you do about them? How do you set up the proper boundaries and approach to make sure that their influence isn't overbearing on you and inhibiting your progress to where you want to go? Wow. It really sounds like this principle is a great way to reclaim back some time as well, because I'm sure we waste a lot of time by being sucked, drained, negatively impacted, et cetera, et cetera. I love it. Um, so there's 12 principles in the book. What's your favorite principle? I, it's hard for me to say a favorite one. One I like talking about is the chapter on being a perspective harnesser. And the reason I like talking about it is because I focused this chapter on a really good friend of mine. But saying we need to change our perspectives is a very easy thing to do. Uh, adopting this is a much more difficult thing to do. And the person that I highlight in this chapter, uh, we've been friends for 35 years. I started out enlisted in the military with him, and his name is Chris Cassidy. And Chris was one of these guys that even when you first met him, you knew there was something different about him and the way that he just approached life. He was like a magnet that people wanted to be around. And so once we graduated from the Naval Academy, it was no surprise to me that uh, Chris picked a, a military specialty where he could use his individual skill sets to best, I, I think, promote his athletic capabilities, but also the way that he was able to overcome the, the hardest of situations. And he ended up going on the track to become a Navy SEAL. And I remember talking to him about going through uh, the basic underwater uh, demolition course, BUDS, and he ended up finishing Honor Man for his class, which of all the people who went through it, I think they start with about 170, he was the top candidate. Wow. And, and I remember he was telling me that what ends up happening is people don't quit in the middle of these hard activities, they quit 
even before the activities begin. They quit in anticipation of the agony that that they're going to face. And he told me that there was a situation where before Hell Week came about, his instructors asked them to go into their offices and to clean up their office. And this is something that would have taken them you know, 20 minutes to do, but they allocated them two hours or something like that to do it. But when they walked in their office, right in front of them lay a book that said Hell Week Itinerary. And it was this thick book. And so some of the people immediately go over to it and say, we need to start looking at this itinerary so we know what's going to happen. And he told me that uh, he told them, obviously, that's there for a reason. And it's there to try to take us away from achieving our goals. So the last thing you should do is be looking at it. But some of the people were we're like, no, this is our opportunity. We've got enough time that we can copy all the pages, take it back and study them so we know exactly what's coming. And so that's exactly what some of these people did. And that night they start looking through all these things and start thinking to themselves, oh my God, we have to swim in the water with sharks. We have to do this. We have to do that. These things are inhuman. They're impossible. Not only are they physically impossible, but there's no way we could possibly have the time to do all these things. And so before they even entered the hell week the next day, those two people who copied the book quit. And I think it's an important lesson of how we look at the perspective that's around us. And Chris also talks about while he was there, there was a foreign exchange soldier from the Thai military who was there who, because of their warm climate in the frigid waters off of California, was just beside himself, just shaking in frigid cold. And Chris was looking at him, realizing that no matter how bad it is for me, it's 100 times worse for this guy, and he's getting through it. And so he came up with this mental mindset from that point forward that he needed to shift his perspective, and this ties into time, to understanding that in life, we're going to go through adversities, we're going to go through uncomfortable situations, but you need to have the mindset that trying times end, and that these things that you're facing are malleable situations, tying back into what I said at the beginning, where if you focus on looking at that period of time as it's a short duration, then what are the next steps that you have to do to get you from one moment to the next? And Chris said when he was going through buds, he didn't think about the end of the day. He thought about, okay, I've just gotten breakfast. What do I have to do to make it to lunch? And then what do I have to do to make it to the afternoon break? And what do I have to do to make it to dinner time? And by breaking these things up as smaller subsections of time, and knowing that if, if he overcame that ailment, it would set him up to have more confidence, more willpower to get through the next one. He said that's what ended up propelling him to achieve that. And it led him to be one of the most heroic Navy SEALs there ever was. And then eventually into being selected by NASA to be an astronaut and ultimately becoming the chief astronaut. Thank you so much for sharing this. 
It's such a tricky thing, John. Um, words don't really teach us, yet words and conversation and stories are what we go through in life. But what you've just shared in the last five minutes of this conversation, for anybody who really gets this, is one of the golden keys to life. Just to break down what I heard John share there about the story of his friend. When we don't know what we don't know, it can help us in order to achieve what we want to achieve. So success comes from knowing that you have everything you need inside of you and then trusting that whatever comes your way, you will rise up to it and overcome it by breaking it down step by step by step by step. And I love that you shared that he just needed to get to lunch and then needed to get to afternoon break and then needed to get to the evening. Because often people in my experience and myself included talk ourselves out of things by thinking, well, what what will I do in January? So at the time of recording, whenever you're listening to this, if you're listening to this at the time we've recorded it, we're coming into the New Year's resolution season. Uh, people overestimate what they can achieve in a short amount of time, but underestimate what they could achieve if they gave themselves the ability to break it down, break it down, break it down. So I know that this is going to be a part of the podcast people are going to rewind and listen back to because what John shared was incredible. And John, you've got many, many luminaries in your book, the, the case studies that you share as well. So can you maybe talk about one more and then we will encourage people to get passion struck. When is the book coming out as well? So two questions there. Who is another story or a case study that we can use on the back of what you just shared? And then when is the book coming out? Okay, I'm going to hit the first one, the latter question first before I forget it. So I've, I've got a copy right here of the book. Wow. It actually comes out uh, February 6th. So right around the corner. Uh Amazing. It's been years in planning, so I'm so excited that it's finally seeing the light of day. And as far as people who I profile, um, I discuss everyone in this book from Jeff Bezos to Oprah Winfrey to Bono to Hillary Swank to generals to admirals to astronauts. Um, but I'll, I shared the story of one Chris Cassidy, but I'll share another one. Uh, and I'm not sure how familiar he might be to you, but I think once you hear what he created, it will make his story uh, more meaningful. So a friend of mine is Jim McKelvey, and Jim has always had the entrepreneurial bug and has been in those circles, but he was also very artistic and he loved to do glass blowing. And he had created this masterpiece of art that a buyer wanted to purchase for multiple thousands of pounds. And at this point in time, back in the day, the only thing that uh, Jim could take was either cash or a check. And this person didn't have either one of them. They wanted him to use a credit card. And so Jim took that situation and he started to think about the problem. And this is out of the, the first principle in the book, which is becoming a mission angler. And what he started to do was he started to examine this problem that only he had the ability to solve. And my point here for the listener 
is that I believe firmly that we are each unique, as unique as our fingerprints that only we possess, or the eyes that we have, or the hair that we have. So too are the talents that we get to expose to the world. And one of the biggest life journeys that we take is how do we become a life crafter, life crafter and discover that purpose that we were put on earth that only we can solve. So getting back to Jim, in his case, this problem that he needed to solve was how can you make a portable solution so that small business owners all over the world would be able to take payment on their smartphone? And so he enlisted the help of a friend of his who people probably do know, Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter. And the two of them started to approach this situation. And for most people, they would have given up early on in the process because it turns out that the federal regulators didn't want to change the way that credit cards were taken. Turns out that the major financial institutions didn't want to change the way that their credit cards were taken. And so one hurdle after another was thrown at them. But they were so dedicated to solving this problem that any single situation that hit them, similar to Chris Cassidy, they found a way to overcome it. And I remember Jim was telling me one night, um, he was thinking through the, the different form factors of what could solve this issue and make it easier. And in a dream, it came to him of, you know, what if we just put a simple square reader on top of a phone, plug it in, and then you could just swipe a card into it. And so he then went on to get all the uh, the designs for it, created this, ended up patenting it. And after multiple years, this became the company Square, which ended up redefining the way we all take payments and ushered in a whole new era for small businesses throughout the world. But it's interesting because as I have talked to Jim and I ask him, what is the differentiation between what made you successful? And we see so many entrepreneurs who end up at the beginning having these incredible ideas, but most of them turn into nothing by the time they're done with it. And he said, the problem is, is people find this unique problem that only they can solve. But yet over time, they get so distracted by the other things that are hitting them that they lose sight of the main thing. And the main thing goes to the wayside and they start working on all these other tangential things without putting the proper focus on solving the thing that they were set, setting out to solve in the first place. And he said so many entrepreneurs that he deals with make that fatal mistake. And what made them successful at Square was they kept the main thing, the main thing, and focused on achieving, making the best product that they could. Um, and you can see the billions and billions and billions of transactions now that have occurred because of that dedication to solving that problem. Such a great example. Thank you for sharing that. And um, for giving us another wisdom nugget there that just focus and in a world of distraction, focus really, in my opinion, is going to become one of the key skill sets that people will be using as a differentiator in the future. Your ability to focus around distraction will define your 
level of success from another's, depending on whatever success means to you. John, we could talk, well, I could talk to you for hours. This conversation is absolutely amazing, but I'm going to hone in on three more questions as we wrap this conversation up today. I love asking people this question because quite often people either know or they don't know. And then in asking the question, it, it leads us off onto another tangent. Tell us something that you do on a daily basis that you know most people don't do and the impact that it has on your life. Yeah, I'm going to tie this into time since that's what we're talking about. But we all have such finite time on on Earth. And I think so much of us waste it. We waste it by being our own worst enemies into how we approach our days. And so something that I do right at the beginning of my my day is I get up at five o'clock in the morning, something I know a lot of people don't do. And I initially was not a morning person either, but I created a space in my day that is dedicated for me to do self-care. And I think it's one of the things that so many of us neglect. And the first three things in my routine are, um, as soon as I get up, I drink an eight ounce or more glass of water. So I get fluid in the system. Then I go out with my dog on a walk. So I'm starting to exercise immediately. But then the third thing I do is I immediately, while I'm taking him on the walk, go into a mindful practice. And the first thing that I do in the mindful practice is a gratitude practice. And it is so vital for me because no matter how I feel when I'm getting up, I mean, I'm human just like anyone else. And some days are better than others, but we choose how we're going to live that day. So I always start that my day is off with saying today is a glorious day and I am going to live it with excellence, with boundless enthusiasm and limitless integrity, true to my visions and with a heart full of love. And to me, I'm setting the intention that no matter what is going on, I want to seize the day. I want to make the most of it that I can. And I think by having that mindset that you you want to live every day with excellence, it sets your intentions for the day on how you're going to live it. And I think the simple thing, BJ Fogg, who wrote Tiny Habits, calls it the Maui principle. You know, he says the first thing you should do is get out of your bed, put your feet on the ground. The first thing you should do is a gratitude practice every single day for something that as you wake up, you feel gratitude towards. Whether you use his method or mine, I think it's something that too few people do. And to me, it's life-changing because it completely sets up how you're going to approach your day, how you're going to approach that first hour of your day. And then that sets up the ensuing hours, the days, the months, the years, and ultimately your life. I love this. Just give us an example. Um, for somebody who is new to gratitude, give us an example of what you actually mean by your gratitude practice? Are you saying a certain number of things that you're grateful for? Is it the same things every day? How specific are you? Because I sometimes feel like the word is banded around, but 
the clarity around it isn't always there for everybody. Yeah, so some days, the previous day, you might have had a bit of good luck or good fortune that the next morning you can wake up and, and be thankful for it. So I could be thankful, for instance, for having a podcast episode that did really well, or I could be thankful that during the day, I'm going to get to interview an amazing person who I've wanted to have on the podcast for a very long time, who finally said yes. Or if you don't have something like that, it could just be something that you're grateful for. Maybe that your kids are safe and healthy. Maybe that your health is good. Maybe that um, you had a prior experience where you had a, a life-threatening moment and you're thankful that you got a second chance to to live your life. It could be anything. I try to make it something different every single day um, so that I'm kind of like forcing myself to be granted, to have a different gratitude every single day, because let's face it, uh, too many of us think about the negative things. And if you start forcing yourself to start thinking about the positive things in your life, it will manifest that I believe into your life. Brilliant. Thank you. So I'm going to combine one of my last questions. I was reading that your true passion in life is to guide individuals to live a passion struck life. So what does that actually mean to you? Can you tell me more about why this mission really matters to you? And what do you hope that somebody, a reader will take away from the book um, when it comes out later in 2024, early 2024? So let me just Try to make this real for people. Um, I recently uh, got to interview Dr. Mark Hyman, and we were talking about some statistics, and I'm just going to spout some of these out to you. Um, across the world, we think about our lifespan, and there's this new concept that we're talking about, our, our health span. So our health span is really how many years of our life coincide with our lifespan of us feeling vibrant, of having good health, etc. And currently, by the time that two-thirds of the global population reaches 50 years old, they have one, if not two, underlying conditions, which means that you end up spending 30 to 40% of your life in a declining health state. Another incredible statistic is that globally, only 6.7% of us have proper metallic health or proper gut health, metabolic health, which means if you think about it the other way, 93% of us don't possess proper metabolic health. Well, what is the biggest issue with those two things? It's our lifestyle choices. It's the decisions that I keep talking about between doing the easy things in life or the hard things in life. And then let me make this even more impactful. Uh, Cornell University, which is one of the Ivy League schools here in the, the States, did a 2018 research study where they investigated thousands of individuals who were nearing the end of their life. And they asked all of them what their biggest regret was in life. 76% of them said it was that they didn't pursue the aspirations, the dreams that one problem that only they could solve and they let that dream go by the wayside. And that's 76% of people. All of this 
revolves around the intentional choices that we're making. And so I wrote Passion Struck because we don't have to live our lives that way. And I think right now, too many of us are focusing our lives on what we think externally matters instead of the intrinsic things that really do bring us joy and happiness and peace and contentment. And I was one of those people. I had hit marks that people would look at my life and say they aspire to do that in their career. I mean, how many people can say that they were in the Fortune 50 C-suite or that they were a private equity partner or et cetera, et cetera. But I reached a point where I was so unhappy because I had achieved all these monetary successes. I had the great cars, the great house, all the money I could I could want all the accolades, recommendations, awards, but inside I felt empty. And what I realized was I had spent so much time making other people's dreams come true in the work that I was doing for these corporations, but I wasn't making my own dreams come true. And so to me, I found that out later on in life. And what I'm trying to do is to help people realize that much earlier, as early as I can in in their own life. Because these decisions, they culminate, as I talked about so many times, either into a life of flourishing, or you take your life in the opposite direction. And those 76% of people who said they weren't able to pursue the life they had, a vast majority of them couldn't do it because of health issues that started to impact them as they aged. So you have the ability every single day to make choices that guide you towards this life you want or take you away from it. And that's what Passion Struck is all about. It's how do you get out of living your life like so many of us are doing today as if we are a pinball in the game of pinball, just bouncing off of things in our life unintentionally, whereas we all have the innate ability to become the players of the game pinball and to use intentionality to focus that ball and give it direction on where it goes throughout the game. And to me, that's what this passion struck mission is all about. It's teaching people how do you combine passion with perseverance and intentionality on the road to becoming self-realized. Wow. This book sounds like it's going to be one of those essential reads for anybody who wants to make sure that they maximize the life experience that they have while they actually have it. Because 76% of people living with regret, nobody wants to be in that statistic. So thank you for explaining that. John, what have you got coming up in 2024 around the book launch? And where can we find out more about you? Where can we follow along online. Obviously, all of the links to everything are going to be in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you want to click on anything to find out more, but just give us an overview. Yeah. So first off, Abigail, thank you so much for having me on your show. It is always uh, such an honor for me to get to spend time with you. And one thing I failed to mention about the book that I want to make sure people understand is people often ask me, you know, why your book? What is different about your book than other self-improvement books out there or other books that have been written about passion, what have you. My answer is I didn't write this book for it to be read. People don't pay for information. They pay for how to apply it. I wrote this book 
so that it could be lived. And so the way I approached it is I give exercises in every chapter. I put QR codes throughout it that give you access to other resources because I want you to constantly come back to this book because it holds the key to how the 700 plus people that I've studied who became vanguards in whatever pursuit they had did it. They followed these same 12 principles that I'm giving to the reader. And as far as uh, book launch activities that I have, the book comes out February 6th. Up until that time, um, throughout the month of January, every solo episode I'm going to do, I'm not reading a chapter, but I'm applying different things that I talk about in the book um, to the different solo episodes I'm doing. And then I'm going to have a series of people who are coming on the podcast throughout the month of January who emulate what it means to be passion struck. And so you will get to see everything from British soldiers who lost limbs in Afghanistan, who are now climbing Mount Everest to, you know, other symbols of who have achieved just amazing things in their life. And then the last week in January, we're still working on the final date. Um, we're going to have a, a global book launch event where people can tune in uh, to that before the book comes out. Um, and then obviously it releases uh, February 6th. This sounds so, so, so exciting. So if you are catching this at the time that it's going out, then join in all of this activities. If not, then catch up on the replay. As I said at the start, John has a passion struck podcast. That's the title of his podcast. Um, and there's 391 episodes at the time of this recording, including John has mentioned BJ Fogg a couple of times. He's a Stanford professor, the author of a book called The Tiny Habits, and he has also been on John, John's podcast. John has had some incredible people on the podcast. So until between now and when the book comes out or whenever you're catching up on this, there is a veritable ton of information that you can mine to make sure that you are aligning yourself and living the life that you really want to be living until John's book comes out, then obviously we all need to deep dive into this. John, wrapping up, is there any question you haven't been asked that you would like to add additionally to this conversation before we call it complete? Um, well, let me just tell them where they can buy the book. So the, the book is currently available on Amazon, or if you go to the Passion Struck website, forward slash Passion Struck book, um, I have personally curated $300 worth of free gifts that I felt would be influential to the Passion Struck community. So if you pre-order the book before February 6th, you get access to all of those, including uh, the first chapter of the book is, is one of them, but a couple of e-books, a masterclass, and some other things. I guess uh, I guess the question that, that that hasn't been asked would be, why have I focused so much on the power of intentionality. And I will just go back to a starting point of my time at the Naval Academy. And a number of years ago, I happened to be reading Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, which most of you are probably familiar with. And she starts out the book by profiling cadets from West Point. And she comes to the conclusion that it's really three things that she felt got them through their plebe summer. And that was their physical aptitude, passion and perseverance. 
And I'm not going to say that any of those weren't true. I have firsthand knowledge in this because I went to the Naval Academy. And as I look at that, yes, your physical abilities were absolutely necessary to get over some of the physical aptitude things you had to do. Uh, but that wasn't enough. Your passion was also important because you had to have the passion to get through your time there. So was persevering against the trying times that you were going to face. But to me, you can have all of that. But if you're acting in a way that goes against your end destination, your end core values, then you're not going to graduate. And I saw this happen firsthand when I was at the academy where the class behind me happened to have the largest cheating scandal in the history of the institution. And so they intentionally made the choice to cheat which ended up costing hundreds of them the opportunity to have the career that they wanted into becoming a Navy or Marine Corps officer. And it got me thinking that we can have all the passion, perseverance in the world. We can have all the grit that we want, but if we're not intentionally applying it to the right areas, then what are we doing? And so to me, it's really that combination of that passion and perseverance with the intentionality to know that if your life isn't going in the direction that you want it to go in, then you need to do something intentional about it to change direction, or else you're going to end up not graduating from the Naval Academy, as an example. So I think that's another important thing for people to think about. Yeah, thank you so much for adding that to the conversation here today. As we wrap this conversation up now, I just want to say a big, huge thank you to you. It has been so incredible to learn more about you, about your vision for Passion Struck, your mission with Passion Struck, and also about all of the ways and the places that we can go and get involved. So 6th of February, 2024, the book is going to be out available until then it's on the pre-orders and so it's on the Amazons all around the world. So wherever you're listening to this, go to the Amazons and make sure that you pre-order it or go to John's website, passionstruck.com, and you'll be able to find it there. But as I've said, everything is in the show notes. So don't panic. We've got you covered. It's all there. You just scroll below and you'll be able to find everything, including a link to John's amazing podcast. So make sure you check that one out too. So John R. Miles, thank you so, so much for joining me today, for sharing your incredible wisdom with us and for just being a, a light in the world that we really, really need out there these days. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Abigail. And I also wanted to just thank you, say a thank you to your, your listeners because our podcast has had a, a great success in the United Kingdom. We're number 58 today, number 20 in Ireland. And I just wanted to say to all the people who are out there listening, if you're a regular listener, thank you. It means so much to us. Uh, but more importantly, I'm hoping we bring uh, qual quality content to you that's helping you live a passion-struck life. Amazing. So, my friends, until next time, stay safe, stay well, and remember, it's your time. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you loved what you heard, be sure to let me know by leaving a review so I can keep the good stuff coming. 
Come and say hi on Instagram at Success by Design Training or visit my website, successbydesigntraining.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search Abigail Barnes. Until next time, don't forget, you are amazing and it's your time.